Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Over the next several weeks on the podcast, we'll be airing special encore presentations of the panels that were hosted at our National Law and Freedom Conference in Toronto earlier this year. Today's episode showcases our panel on recent Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence concerning Section 15 of the Charter, featuring Professor Hoi Kong and lawyer George Avram, moderated by Christine Van Gein. It's my pleasure to introduce our moderator for our panel on Section 15 of the Charter, Christine Van Gein, a very good friend of mine. Christine, as you will no doubt know, is an outspoken advocate for freedom in Canada, and she was appointed the Director of Litigation for the Canadian Constitution Foundation in 2020. She earned her undergraduate degree in political science and ethics, society and law at uh, Trinity College here at U of T, and her JD at my alma mater, Osgood Hall Law School, and she also studied at New York University School of Law. She was called to the Ontario Bar in 2012, and before joining the CCF, she practiced commercial litigation and then served for a time as the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Everyone, please welcome Christine. Hello. Hello, is this on? Yes, okay. Um, Thanks everyone for being here for the first panel of the day. Uh, I wanna thank you all for being here at 9 a.m. on a Saturday when you all could be sleeping in or spending time with your families. You chose to be here with us and it's really an honor that you all made it so early. And it's also, I think, a testament to the reputation of the Runnymede Society's flagship conference uh, that so many people are here so early. This morning, we're gonna be discussing developments in Section 15 jurisprudence, a section that I have always found to be one of, if not the most challenging sections of the Charter. I don't think that I'm alone in that sentiment. I'd like to focus in particular on the current tension between the Fraser decision and the recent decision in Sharma. And I'd also like to discuss, discuss a lower court decision Uh, that stands out to me as particularly interesting, and it's not just because the Canadian Constitution Foundation is applying to intervene in it, although it certainly helps. I'm going to get into, we're going to get into what those cases, Fraser and Sharma, are all about. So if you're not a Section 15 expert practitioner, or if you're a student, we are going to explain those cases, so don't worry. But first I'd like to start by introducing our esteemed panelists. Professor Hoi Kong is the inaugural holder of the Beverly McLaughlin UBC Professorship in Constitutional Law, which he assumed in 2018. He is a senior research fellow at the University of Texas at Austin's program on comparative constitutional studies and a Peter Wall scholar. He researches and teaches in areas of constitutional, administrative, and municipal and comparative law and constitutional and public law theory. Everyone. And George Avram is the managing partner of Baker McKenzie Toronto. He's recognized as Canada's leading labor, employment, and administrative public law litigators. His practice is focused on complex litigation, and he's been lead counsel before various administrative tribunals and the courts, including the Supreme Court of Canada. He is also representing the CCF in a number of cases, including one of the cases that we're going to be discussing on the panel today. 
So let's get into it. And as I said, I want to start with a little bit of a primer on Section 15, uh, because as I said, it can be a challenging provision. And since we're going to be comparing two cases in particular, Fraser and Sharma, I want to lay them out. So uh, Hoy, at, at a very high level, let's start with Fraser. Can you explain the, the case and the legal test that came out of that decision? Thank you all so much, and thank you to the uh, Rutgers Society for the invitation. So Fraser is basically a case about a difference in uh, pension benefits. Um, if you are a, uh, an employee under this scheme, and you decide to job share for a period of time, right, um, you have lower pension benefits than if you decided to take leave without pay. Right? Leave, uh, including for... Um, suspended or decide just to take unpaid leave, um, you would be able to buy back your pension benefits, right? That's the essence of the problem, of the, of the difference of the scheme, okay? Um, and so it turns out that um, the people who take job sharing uh, were uh, disproportionately women who were um, child care responsibilities. Now, there's a slight nuance because the court does say that there was no finding that there's a difference job sharing program. So there's kind of an evidentiary question. Oh, okay. Good? Like how mine is. Okay, all right. Sorry, I, have a, I normally have like an obnoxiously loud voice, so I was like <laughs> kind of concerned I would like blow out the windows in the room. Um, okay, so that's the, that's the sort of basics of the uh, difference in the legislative regimes, and that's what gives rise to the Section 15 claim on sex. Okay? So let's turn now to the, um, to the uh, doctrinal test under Section 15. So uh, the court sets out, I think, what is a relatively uncontroversial statement of the test. Right? So it says that there's a two-part test. Uh, the first question is whether on its face or in its or in its impact, a law, broadly defined, creates a distinction based on an enumerated or analogous ground. Okay, that's the first step. Second step is, does it impose a burden or deny a benefit in a manner that has the effect of reinforcing, perpetuating, or exacerbating disadvantage? Okay, so two-part test. That's a relatively, I think, uncontroversial statement of the test. Now, in adverse effects discrimination cases, there hasn't really been, I think, that much thought uh, put into what the first part of that test means exactly. And so part of what Fraser does is it kind of elaborates what that first part of the test requires. So the court says, the majority says, that um, there are two kinds of evidence that may be helpful in establishing that a law in an adverse effects discrimination case has a kind of adverse effect, right? So first, you can look at evidence about the situation of the claimant group. Second, you can look at evidence about the results of the law. Now, the court says that neither is mandatory, although ideally you would have both, okay? There's an additional um, kind of nuance in the uh, decision, and it's something that the dissent picks up on. Um, and the, court, and the court at paragraph 62 of Fraser says that if you have clear and consistent statistical disparities, you can show a disparate impact on members of protected groups, even if, quote, the precise reason for the impact 
is unknown. That gives rise to a certain amount of debate between the majority and the dissent. I think it's an issue that the majority in Sharma tries to sort of clarify or sharp tighten up in their reasons. Yeah, so let, let's get to Sharma then. So, so do you mind if I, I'll, I'll just oh, turn yeah, to discrimination? Sorry, yeah, sorry, so, yes, that's, so that's the first, that's the first branch, right? The second branch of the test is whether there's discrimination, whether we can show that there's a effect of re reinforcing, perpetuating, or exacerbating disadvantage. And here I think there are two sort of key doctrinal developments in Fraser. So the first is that Fraser explicitly removes the requirement of arbitrariness, right? So in the Tepatat, the previous sort of canonical statement of the Section 15 test, Tepatat includes arbitrariness. In this case, they remove it explicitly, okay? Uh, they also note that um, any considerations of relevance should be moved to Section 1. So those are the facts of Fraser, and that's the high-level sort of doctrinal test, as well as the two kind of some refinements around the first stage and some clarifications around the second. So I'll turn it over to my colleague. Thanks, everybody. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Um, you know, what I notice is both academics and litigators always prep right to the last minute, so you'll see us in common scrambling, writing notes right before we start anything. Sharma was a, a, a case that just recently came out in December. And in this case, uh, a member of the Saudi nation pled guilty to importing cocaine substance of cocaine, over a kilogram of cocaine. And she wanted a conditional sentence. The problem for her is conditional sentences are creatures of statute. They were introduced in 1996, and then in 2012, they were removed as an option for various offenses that carried sentences for over a, a, a period of time. And in that case, it was... So she couldn't get a conditional sentence. And she litigated this at the, at the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal said, looking at the Fraser framework and adverse impact discrimination, that absence or that lack of a conditional sentence violated Section 15 and wasn't saved by Section 1. So this goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. And what the Supreme Court of Canada does is say, the majority does anyways, that they're clarifying a test which, although I'm sympathetic to the new test, is not really a clarification. So it, it, it reintroduces, at least at stage two, this notion of unfairness or arbitrariness in terms of looking at that stage. So read that part carefully, it does reintroduce it. And then to the point of the first part of the test, it says, there's always distinctions when you create legislation. So that's not the test. It can't be just a distinction. There has to be a disproportionate impact. And what the majority says is that the legislative scheme or the government action has to create or contribute to the disproportionate impact. And we'll talk about this a bit later, but it doesn't mean the entire piece of legislation or the government action has to be a result of the disproportionate impact. Part of it could. In human rights legislation, that's called sort of the taint theory, right? Even if part of that decision, part of the legislation, part of the action is tainted, quote unquote, by discrimination, then it's discriminatory. So you've got this new sort of uh, refinement 
a reintroduction of some concepts um, that we'll be litigating for a long time, um, to be honest with you. Section 15 is not just about the charter, the, and we'll talk about this a bit later. This, has, uh, this test is applied throughout human rights legislation, and it's uh, hardly settled as to where we're going. So I want to get into that, that tension that you've touched on, George, because the majority says that this, this is the same test. The dissent says this isn't, this isn't a refinement. This is a whole new test. So who is right? Is it a new test or is it a refinement? And even if it is a new test, is the majority in a position where they kind of have to deny that it's a new test because they're obligated to... I mean, Fraser's not even a very old decision. So, uh, Hoy, we'll start with you. What's your view? I think it's a new test. Um, so the dissent says, look, it's a wholesale revision. I don't think it's a wholesale revision, but it's definitely a new test um, at both stages. So the writers, the, the, the judges in the majority in Sharma were in dissent, in a scathing dissent in Fraser, right, in which they said, look, on the first step, the majority in Fraser has essentially eliminated causation. They, they say that they reduce causation, the requirements of causation of proof, almost to nothing, right? They say that, in particular, at paragraph 62 that I, that I described, that they allow for correlation to substitute for causation, right? Sharma, they say, the test that we offer around the first stage is consonant with Fraser. It's hard to see how it's consonant when exactly the same judges said in Fraser that it was, it removed the causation and they, and they reintroduced causation. Charma. On the discrimination point, on the second stage of the test, authority in Fraser expressly says that arbitrary is, arbitrariness is to be considered, it is the government's burden to show arbitrariness under section one, right? Jorati and Sharma says arbitrariness is a factor to consider under Section 15. Again, I don't see how these are consistent. So it seems to me that um, there, this is a new test, and you don't have to take my word for it. The majority reasons, the, the authors of the majority reason of Sharma said that, said that in, by implication when they dissented quite um, strongly in Fraser. Yeah, I mean... It's even a bigger mess than what Hoy just said. Um, the Chief Justice has flipped on Section 15 uh, several times, and he, he was in the majority on Fraser and joined the majority in Sharma. So, okay? He's relevant because obviously he's still there. Justice Moldaver was in the majority in Fraser and then went with the majority in Sharma. So there's also either a workability problem with the test that there's those two, and, and obviously the one, is still struggling with. We've got a change, of course, in the composition of the court. The doctrine has gone through a five or six different tests since, I don't know, 2008. Um, I wouldn't bank on this being settled. Um, you know, the late Peter Hogg always sort of held the position that like we were trying to do too much work at the section 15 test. I'm not, I don't think I buy this, but you know, he said sort of like the freedom of expression case is just 
make it a, a, an easy test at the, at the 15 level and then just have all the work done at section one. I'm not sure that's gonna simplify it. Um, that said, right now, it's, it's, it's a big challenge and I agree with, with Hoy. It's, we think we know where the law is right now, but you know, that ask us in about a month, right? <clears throat> yeah, I want to follow up on that actually because I, I'm, I'm concerned that we are going to be destined to permanent indeterminacy on Section 15. So, George, you've said that we are probably going to wait a few years and then see another tweak again. Hoy, what's, what's your perspective on that? Do you think there's ever going to be a settled test on Section 15? just so happens that I have an article coming out in the Supreme Court Law Review, which resolves the whole issue. So. <laughs> Amen. So if the Supreme Court listens to me, we're good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the problem with Section 15 is that it's just there's so much um, disagreement about, I think, what equality means, right? Um, I'm happy to sort of go through my reworking of the Section 15 test, which will resolve this once and for all. Um, but I'm not 100% sure that the Supreme Court will take me up on it. George, anything to add on that? On the, on the permanent <laughs> indeterminacy of, of Section 15? No, but what I will say is, is this. It, it, those of you who choose to, to litigate cases, you'll see that one of the key things in both Fraser and Sharma is how the majority frames the issue. So how you frame the issue sometimes determines what the outcome of that case is, right? And until you, and, and really you have to think about what is it that you're really asking the court to do? Because at its core, section 15 is so malleable and it's really malleable, you know, tell the court why you should win and then give them the roadmap as to how you do it and how you do that is framing the issue. So let me give the example in Fraser. Justice Abella, for the majority, frames it as full-time people who had to reduce their workloads because they had childcare needs, right? The dissent says, well, wait a second, people, the employer pays you compensation in return for work, and when you look at the overall pension scheme, it's a compensatory framework. So with those framing of issues, those polar opposites, quite frankly, you can sort of see with this test how flexible it is to get to a result. So in Fraser, the court wrote that Section 15 was designed to be, to quote them, ambitious but not utopian. They wrote, to quote them, that the Section 15 inquiry has involved identifying the presence, persistence, and pervasiveness of disadvantage based on enumerated or analogous grants. grounds. Its mandate is ambitious but not utopian to address the disadvantage where it is identified so that the pursuit of equality, inequality, of equality, inequality can be reduced one case at a time. But George, do you think that Fraser perhaps did tread too far towards utopianism? Some people have argued that to the degree that Section 15 and substantive equality seek equality of outcome, well, that is a utopian vision. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think that Sharma may be an attempt to rein that in? Yeah, so, so full disclosure, as, as you can probably imagine, I usually 
you know, my practice is, is largely for employers, so I'm usually on the receiving end of, of these 15 or discrimination type claims. And I could tell you trying to defend a Fraser case that was so malleable in terms of what we're looking at in comparison. And I know that's the, an evil word, the sort of mirror comparator group and the Supreme Court of Canada uh, sort of says don't look at it because it's very rigid and very formalistic. But I couldn't really advise clients as to what an outcome would be with that Fraser framework. The way they framed the issue, the majority framed the issue, and the way they went to look at specific parts of the legislation. Right, so where the dissent comes out hard, and, and the judges there in a, in, a, in a different case involving youth offenders um, uh, and in, in Sharma is saying, you can't cherry pick certain parts of legislative schemes to sort of then say we'll have substantive equality. Right, you've got to look at the entire package. And it, it, whether it's utopian or whether it's policy driven, um, you know, my views on that are, I think, pretty obvious. Um, when you're looking at certain parts of legislative schemes and then picking out who you're comparing it to, I don't know if that's utopian or just, you know, what the work of a legislature, right? Boy, anything to add there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about utopian, but I would say that if you relax the causal requirements such that a simple fact of, of relative disadvantage is sufficient to trigger a Section 15 claim, pretty close to moving Section 15.1 into Section 15.2 territory, right? Section 15.2 is a facilitator provision. It allows government to enact programs. But if the trigger for the Section 15.1 analysis is simple disproportionate, a simple disproportion of this relative disadvantage, then 15.1 and 15.2 begin to look a lot like each other. And then I think you open the concerns, the court to the concerns that um, George has identified. I, I want to discuss disproportionate impact, George. What exactly does that term mean in the jurisprudence? Is there a clear definition? Has it been clarified in Sharma at all, or does it remain unanswered? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the one, and Hoy touched on this earlier, so the, what the court in Fraser says is you can have a, a different pieces of evidence to, to establish disproportionate impact. Statistics, right, being one. Expert evidence, right, being another. The claimant's own evidence, their own experiences, either through an affidavit or through, uh, you know, Viva. And that's fine. But then what, right? There's always a distinction, right? There will be a distinction in legislation. Whether that's based on an enumerated or analogous ground is a, is a different question. But I couldn't tell you based on the Fraser test, I think I'm more enlightened now after Sharma, what was required for a claimant to prove disproportionate impact. It could have been statistics. If 60% of those adversely impacted were women, that enough with no other evidence? Maybe. And if you actually read Fraser, it says, well, the statistics may be enough, or they may not be enough, and you need some additional evidence. You're not really giving 
parties, nor are you giving lower courts the guidance they need to apply this, right? What they need. It's anybody could drive a truck through that, that test, in my view, you know, sort of litigating it. Sharma does a better job because it says the government action or the legislation has to cause or create it. Now, they don't really, in my view, do enough to refine the type of evidentiary requirements, and I understand that. They don't want to box in lower courts or administrative tribunals too much, but I think that's one area that still needs to be developed and, and at the jurisprudential level. I still believe Justice Cote's caution in, in Fraser is that we're going to be fighting and litigating cases about statistics and who's got better numbers. Um, you know that saying, figures never lie, but liars figure, right? I mean, you can get experts to be really playing on the statistics a fair bit, right? And what the causal connections are. Anything to add there, Hoy, on um, what exactly disp disproportionate impact means and, and if it's been clarified in Sharma? Yeah, so as I say, I think that, that Fraser really did leave the disproportionate impact analysis kind of confused a little bit because, so at paragraph 67, they say that either evidence, well, they say, actually, they say both uh, evidence of claimant group situations or evidence of outcomes may demonstrate disproportionate impacts. And then they say, neither is mandatory. They all, but they don't say you have to show at least one. So it's at least possible on a, like a literal reading of Fraser that you don't even need to show either of these things, right? So if that's the case, then we're really in the wilderness. We really don't know what's necessary to show adverse impact. As for whether or not um, Sharma clarified it, so at paragraph 46, they do uh, say that you, know, that you have to show that state action causes or contributes, and then they give a sort of list of things that uh, you can consider. Um, and I'm not 100% sure that the guidance they provide on that is any, is, it provides very much more guidance than what Fraser provided. So I, I wanna dig into something both of you mentioned, which is this, this use of statistics. And, and George, you alluded to it in, in your comments, but in, in um, her reasons in Fraser, Justice Cote warned that this was inviting, that the majority was inviting statistics-based litigation. So you've suggested that you think that that's the direction that we're going. Is it? And why is that bad? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, I think in part, it's bad for the reasons Hoy just touched on, which is we're conflating 15.1 and 15.2. And that in 15.2, is the responsibility of a, of a government to come in with a, an ameliorative program, and they have the right to do that, and, you know, and those challenging it, good luck to them, right? I mean, it's right in the 15-2. The problem with zeroing in so much on statistics, and you'll, we'll talk about this in a second with the Petrucci case, is that that's the focus. That becomes the bling. That becomes the flashing lights. And you'll see that in that case, that that's what drove the analysis, because there was no evidence from a claimant, sorry, there was evidence from one claimant on this who had a bunch of speculative evidence, and you'll see that in the decision. When judges start saying the, the, the affiant believes this to be the case, and then takes it as a finding, that should raise red flags for you as students, and then ultimately, you know, when we're arguing these things on appeal or, or, or at, you know, at the divisional court, right? 
So that is the concern, is that everybody is going to be driving that, uh, their, their records on those experts, on the, on the statistics, and the other real evidence on the tangible impacts, and the tangible impacts both on claimants, because let's not kid ourselves, I mean, 15-1's there for a reason. The discrimination provisions in the Human Rights Code are there for a reason. They, they happen, but it drives up the cost of litigation. I can tell you that when you're dealing with experts, like, they ain't cheap, as they would say, right? So that's not, that's not just on the uh, parties, that's on the uh, time, social uh, resources on the court. Ahoy to you, the, any comment on, on the invitation to statistics-based litigation and whether or not we should share Justice Cote's concerns about that being a negative thing? So I think, I think it's helpful just to sort of set the table for the question, when statistics might matter. Right? So in the sort of canonical classic cases of adverse effect discrimination, you have exclusions of essentially entire classes. Right? So if you think about Eldridge, right, the failure to provide um, uh, sign language services for the deaf. If you think about Vreen, gays and lesbians excluded as an entire class. Right? In those cases, statistics aren't an issue because you have an exclusion of an entire class, and that's basically an equivalent to explicit discrimination, direct discrimination, right? So causation isn't an issue there, and statistics aren't an issue, because you have an uncontroversial instance of discrimination. Where statistics might matter are in cases where you come short of an exclusion as to an entire, of an entire class. And I think that's just a, um, I think that's just a challenge. And so I have my own views about what I think the court, that there's not a lot of guidance about what the courts are going to do in, those, in that second category of cases. So George, you had mentioned the Petrucci case, which is a really exciting case for me, in a, in a bad way, I guess. Uh, it's a case that's um, come out of the Ontario, I, I think it was the divisional court, and it's heading to the Court of Appeal. It's a case about uh, math and racism. It was brought by some Ontario teachers' candidates against the government that had imposed uh, a math qualifying test for teachers. Uh, and it was struck down uh, for, being, for violating Section 15. Can you explain um, why and whether you think Sharma could impact this case. And, and, and for disclosure, this is a case that we at the CCF are applying to intervene in and that George is representing us on. So in 2018, the government uh, amends the legislation to require a competency test for math, competency test for teachers. And the framework for that is that in, the, um, in one through six, a teacher has to have the ability to teach math. After six, the teacher has to consent to teach math, right? So the government says, okay, we require students, and, and you guys are young enough to, to do, have probably done the EQAOs, but you know, grade three, six, nine, I think it is, you have to do the EQAO, and that's the framework that we're going to use for the competency test. So, and they had a review and they had, they looked at the implicit biases that could flow from standardized tests. They ran the tests and the statistics showed that those um, uh, racialized communities 
scored lower than whites. Now, is that the end of the story? Those were the statistics. There was some literature review that supported the fact that standardized tests, in some cases, had a disproportionate impact on those in racialized communities. But that's not the end of the story, right? Because you can't just stop there. What happens? You could write the test as many times as you wanted to. Nobody's trying to keep them from being teaching. You could write it 10 days after you get a fail, right? And then you could write it again. So there, the, the one claimant uh, who didn't, uh, who, who actually put in an affidavit passed it, but the test was two parts. One is a, I think it was 75 multiple choice questions, and then there's a pedagogy part to it. And uh, he failed the pedagogy part twice and then passed it the third time. But his evidence was also speculative. I believe that people from outside of Canada, and, and he was from Nigeria, uh, wouldn't, get, wouldn't be able to figure this out. And the court, candidly, remarkably, when you look at this, does a 15-2 analysis. If you look at the reasons, it, it really conflates, and this is what, uh, what Sharma said about the Court of Appeals uh, did in, in Sharma, 15-1 and 15-2. Uh, sorry, the, the second part of the 15-1 test. I, I, there's a reason I said about 15-2, and I'll come to it. And so you're not looking at this between the, the two-part test. When you read the decision, it says there are marginalized people in schools. They deserve more diversity at the teacher level. The, the teachers will not become uh, qualified and, and reach the diversity goals uh, needed in schools uh, if this standardized test is in. It, that, that to me seems like a 15-2 argument, not a 15-1 argument. And then it goes on to say, well, you know, even though you can write it 10 days later, it's not fair to anybody who just failed to expect to write a test 10 days later. I'm not kidding, that is the analysis. And then it said, well, if you have to write it again, you know, you have to study, um, and you may think I'm being flipped, but go read the decision. I'm actually not being flipped. Um, you have to study, you may have to take some time off work, so that has a disproportionate impact, and, it's, um, and it meets both parts of the test. That is Fraser on steroids, right? I mean, it really is. It's taken it and gone to a whole different level. It is a 15-2 analysis. Um, I don't believe this carries the day in view of Sharma. Bates or contributes, right, the first part of the test, and I know um, uh, there's, that still needs to be flushed out, but creates or contributes. I don't know how a standardized test is going to fulfill or the absence of a standardized test is going to be able to fulfill what the court thinks is the needs for diversity or more diversity in, in schools, right? I don't know how that does it. And the other part of it is, I don't know how this exacerbates or perpetuates the disadvantage that's necessary as part of the second part of the test arbitrariness, unfairness that's reintroduced in Sharma. I don't think it carries the day. So, Hoy, I, I know you're not uh, working on that case, but I, I'll give you an opportunity to respond if, if you want. Um, 
And if not, let me know. <laughs> I can ask you something else. So yeah, I, I, I think that I think that the core of these kinds of what is the state action that contributes to the, that uh, that is sufficient to trigger the causation requirements? I think that's your finger on. Yeah. So okay, I'll I'll ask you about Ahoy concerns that some people have raised about Section 15 being outcome driven and perhaps the outcome driven, the ability to, to focus on outcome is because it is such a contextual test. Is there anything you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that that particular criticism really came up strong in earlier versions of the test. So for instance, uh, in law, and they set out a multi-factored contextual analysis. And I think people, what people said was that you have a bunch of factors that are kind of, some of which can, are sort of working at cross purposes. And so I think that if you have a test that's really wide open and really open textured, then um, it's relatively easy for people to use the test and sort of manipulate the test, even beyond just the question of characterization, right, um, to come to different outcomes. And so I think the challenge for section 15 is to give it a kind of normative core that people can sort of work off of and say, look, this is what this section 15 is about, right? This thing and not multiple conflicting things, this thing. And I think that if the court can do that, that reduces the risk of outcome-driven um, analysis. George, anything to add on that? Yeah, let, let, let me go back to the framing of the issue. Let me just read out let Fraser and then Sharma for a second. So this is the majority in Fraser. Unlike full-time members who work, 40, who work regular hours, 40 hours a week, who are suspended or take unpaid leave, full-time members who job share are classified as part-time workers under the regulations and cannot, under the terms of the pension plan, obtain full-time pension credit for their service. The court characterizes these full-time people are members who job share. Why is that important? Because if they classify them as part-time members, part-time members don't get to buy back. So they're not part-time, right? They're full-time who job share. Framing that issue that way is going to get you to the outcome that the majority ended up with. In dissent, paragraph 140, is tying pension benefits to hours work discriminatory? Again, when you frame it that way, I think we know which way the outcome's gonna be. And I'm not saying they're working backwards from the result and they're framing it that way, but when you're looking at the framing of the issue and you're reading it right at the beginning, you kinda know where this is going, right? Um, and in, in Sharma, it, it's, it's, you know, the dissent. If you look at paragraph 114 of Sharma, it's all about the historical disadvantage indigenous people have faced in the criminal justice system. That's what it starts at. Is there any doubt where that court's going? Though um, that dissent's going with that. So, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to be a formalist. I argue like a formalist, but in section 15, I think it, a lot of it is driven, uh, regrettably, with results and outcomes. So I said in the at the beginning that I've always found section 15 to be a particularly challenging part of the charter. I, and, and that I'm not alone. I think I'm not alone. And, and I believe Justice Moldaver actually said 
that for him, Section 15 is the hardest part of the charter. Why is that? <laughs> Maybe, I mean, I know why it is for me, and part of it is, quite frankly, the jurisprudence. But, Hoy, what do you think? Is Section 15 always going to be just a more challenging part of our charter, and why? Yeah, I mean, I think because there are different views of what Section 15 is trying to do. So, um, on, the, on the sort of earlier quotation you gave us uh, that mentioned utopia, right, the focus there is on disadvantaged groups and essentially ameliorating their conditions and reducing inequality in Canadian society. That's different than a focus than Section 15 if it's understood to um, uh, focus on arbitrary treatment by the state of members of enumerated and analogous ground groups. So I think that there's this kind of different intuition about what the core of Section 15 is. Is it about arbitrariness, or is it fundamentally about improving the conditions of disadvantaged groups in the Canadian society? And I think that's what gives rise to the, to the complexity. Um, I think it's resolvable, but I just think that the court needs to resolve it. They need to decide what is the what is the primary focus of Section 15? George, anything to add there? No, always captured my thoughts precisely. George, I want to ask on your practice, which is more employment um, and human rights work. You know, the 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 decision in Sharma will have implications for human rights litigation. What do you think those implications are going to be? You know, the the court here can actually learn something from the administrative tribunals who have dealt with the human rights code in this way. There is very little in the Section 15 case law, in part because the court hasn't dealt with too many adverse impact cases about reasonable accommodation. And, and how do you reasonably accommodate some of these distinctions, this disproportionate impact, without striking down everything? Right? If you look at, the, at Petrucci, for example, Petrucci built into that scheme are, in my view, accommodations that are reasonable. You get to re rewrite it as many times as you can. Right? You get to rewrite it 10 days after you find out if you, if you failed it. And, and that is actually something that, that the doctrine hasn't developed yet on 15 on the adverse impact. And, and we can learn a lot, the court can learn a lot uh, from, from the tribunals on this stuff. On the flip side, you know, since uh, Mioran, right, uh, the all human rights tribunals, and even, no matter what the statute says, because, you know, cares about text, right? Um, uh, they, they sort of sort of say, we're applying the Supreme Court of Canada's discrimination test. So the problem with not having cogent even workable principles coming out of the Supreme Court. Again, since 20, 2008, I think it's been five or six different tests, right? That's hard for parties to work with, right? So when you're looking at these discrimination claims, and I can assure you most of the claims that labor arbitrators or human rights tribunals deal with aren't direct discrimination claims. They're adverse impact claims. Right? So the more you deal with it going down and the more the court is so uncertain in where it's going to land, the larger the adverse impact, and, and sorry for the, that term, but it's true, on parties who tend to litigate in front of, you know, in, 
the trenches, quite frankly, at the at arbitrations or or uh, at tribunals. Hoy, anything you want to add about the impact of this? Once again, reiteration of the test on uh, human rights litigation. No, I think I think George has it right because I think that Miorin basically requires a consistency between Section 15 and human rights codes. So if you have inconsistency at the uh, at the Section 15 in the Section 15 jurisprudence, that will bleed into the human rights litigation. Yeah. So I want to ask the last question, which is about the split on the court on this decision, which is a split that we have seen before and we've seen a number of times. And I want to ask what, I, I don't want to import um, arguments from the United States about the nature of, of their courts. And, and you know, based on our conversation last night at the fireside chat, I don't want to overemphasize splits because as we discussed last night, dissenting is actually a lot less common than uh, it's portrayed. It's just that the splits and the dissents happen in uh, these very, very uh, dramatic cases. So what do you think the split means for the court in general uh, and the stability of the court in general and then maybe the stability of Section 15 in particular? I'll start with you, Hoy. Well, I mean, I think the, the, one of the really important things to note is that there's a two-year gap. It's a 2022 case and a 2020 case. And they did essentially a 180, right? So that's not great, right? That's not a good look for the court. I mean, that's why they, that's why they <laughs> deny doing it. Right, right. So that's, that's not a good look for anybody, right? And so I think the problem that gives rise to is this kind of perception that all it takes is a shift of a couple of votes on the Supreme Court of Canada to radically change the jurisprudence in this area. So I think, as I said before, I think there needs to be some kind of common ground about what they're talking about when they're talking about Section 15. Um, so I think the split in Section 15 is essentially what I, was, what I outlined. Is it about disadvantage or is it about arbitrariness? Right? Generally speaking, I think as a matter of across the court's jurisprudence, I think there is a kind of difference of the court between those who do take, you know, to use George's words, formalism a little more seriously, and those who take, who are essentially functionalists. Um, and I think that's a major split. You know, I don't mind splits, honestly, because you know, before this current court and, and, and the more recent appointments, we'd get majority judgments, but nobody would understand what was going on because they were such, at such a level of generality, abstraction, that you really couldn't get to, you'd have different problems applying them to a set of facts when you're dealing with them, right? So I don't mind that because actually now you're starting to see, as much as there's tension uh, in the court, a bit more clarity for parties and the lawyers to be able to advise clients. Now, I'm not saying 15 is the model of that yet, uh, just yet, but I really think the Chief Justice is struggling with Section 15 more than others. Um, he has more than us. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's flipped a few times on this. Like I said, he was in the majority in Fraser and then the majority in Sharma. And I really think he's struggling to Hoy's points, which one is it, right? Um, I think the others are more certain. 
Of course, Justice Moldaver also was in the majority in Fraser and then the majority in Sharma. So you probably have a 4-4 split with a new justice on there. Which way we're going, who knows? Right? So I don't, again, I, I, I totally agree with Hoy's senses. They need to figure out which way they're going. I'm not sure they're going to. I think the, the, the core are pretty entrenched. And I think Chief Justice um, uh, Wagner is going to be, you know, I think still working through this. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. This week's episode was a special encore presentation from our National Law and Freedom Conference. This year's conference was sponsored by the National Post, Miller Thompson LLP, Baker and McKenzie LLP, LexisNexis Canada, Jordan Honickman Barristers, Castles, Brock, and Blackwell LLP, and the McDonald Laurier Institute. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.